Welcome to Everyday Martial Artist, a weekly podcast where you'll join me, Brian Doucet, as I interview a different martial artist each episode and hear their story. Some guests you may have heard of, and some you probably haven't. Be sure to subscribe where all your favorite podcasts are available. Also, visit our website at everydaymartialartist.com. If you're listening for a specific interview, I sure hope you'll stay and check out the other episodes. A very special thank you to Topher Williams for our custom theme music. And now, the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. Everyday Martial Artist is brought to you by KOonline.com for all your martial arts needs. Sparring and safety gear, rank belts, uniforms, weapons, patches, and more. Wholesale supplies made by martial artists for martial artists. Visit us today at KO-Online.com. Hello and welcome to Everyday Martial Artist. I'm your host, Brian Doucette, and as we do every week, we're joined by a brand new guest talking about their life and their journey throughout the world of martial arts. My guest today is the founder of American Freestyle Karate, a uniquely American martial art, as well as the author of the best-selling book, American Freestyle Karate, A Guide to Sparring, which has been in print for over 40 years. He has a 10th degree black belt in karate, a 10th degree black belt in Filipino modern Arnis, and a 9th degree black belt in MA-80 system Arnis Escrima. He is a four-time national karate champion and world champion, having won over 70 grand titles. He has taught all over the world, as well as authored and produced over 100 books and DVDs. Please welcome my guest today, Super Dan Anderson. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing very well, thank you. Well, kind of what we like to do with all of my guests, I want to go back to the very beginning. I want to know where that first spark came from, that first interest that kind of kicked off your martial arts journey. Sure. Well, if we, we started off, actually, many years before martial arts, and... I like to tell people that I was a failed baseball player. Now, I was in a little league, and I loved baseball. I followed baseball. Los Angeles Dodgers were my favorite team, et cetera, et cetera. Nice. And I thought I was pretty good at baseball, but there was only one bad thing. and, and uh, Well, two bad things. Number one was my uh, confidence and my abilities were uh, that outstripped my actual abilities. That, that wasn't good. And then the other thing is I would choke at the plate. So, you know, we'd get up the bat. <laughs> And I knew that fastball was going to hit me in the helmet. I knew it, the fastball was going to hit me in the ribs. It never did. <laughs> and uh, and then I kept getting switched around different positions, you know, because I, I wanted to pitch. Mm -hmm. And my my coach, um, you know, he told me, well, you're a utility player. Well, yeah, it, it took a number of years after that to find out that a utility player is somebody who you stick in the position that you think they'll do the least damage. <laughs> and so... I, I saw right field a lot, and uh, I played catcher a tiny bit. The very last game that I participated in, they allowed me to pitch, basically because our number one pitcher and hitter had gone on vacation, and I think we were down in the cellar or something. And you know, we won fifteen to five for my pitching. Right? Wow! And he and he said after that, Gosh, I, I wish I knew that you could pitch. And I'm I'm, I'm sucking down hard inside. <laughs> you know, you haven't been listening to me for the last three years. I've been on the team. I wanted to pitch anyway. So my uh, yeah, my dream of being somewhat of a baseball player was kind of dashed to dust. Mm -hmm. So in nineteen uh, nineteen sixty six. I was part of what's called the Civil Air Patrol. Now, the Civil Air Patrol is a is an auxiliary of the U.S. Air Force. It's a civilian auxiliary. But, you know, you get to learn about planes. And, uh, I mean, mostly what we did was, you know, we studied and we marched. Mm -hmm. I can still, to this day, I can still march. <laughs> and uh, I don't do it, but I can. But anyway, that's a lot of what we did. Well, there was this guy there who was a captain. And his name was David Starkey. And David Starkey did karate. Now, this is 1966, mind you. Mm -hmm. What you see in karate is basically 
James Coburn and Our Man Flint karate chopping, ju- no, excuse, judo chopping judo the guy chopping, on the shoulder yeah. and the guy drops. Or professional wrestling where they do various judo chops to set. So karate is very, uh, very exotic, very mystical. Now, at the same time, there was this funny sounding little noisy guy dressed in black on the green hornet. And that was Bruce Lee. Right. And so Mm -hmm. he's, he's making all these squeals and sounds and he sure doesn't look like James Coburn and judo shopping. He's kicking, he's knocking down doors. He's throwing darts. He's doing all this crazy stuff. And this captain in the the civil air patrol, he does that sort of thing. So I talked to my mom and I said, yeah, for my birthday, you know, please let me do karate and so forth. So, so Dave tells me when the class is, tells me where it is. Now, mind you, this is Vancouver, Washington. Uh, it has a population, I think, of about 24,000 people at the time. Does not have a dojo in the town. And so I go to the Marshall Recreation Center where uh, every class they convert the weight room, which means they move all the weights off to the side. And we have this little training space for uh, the karate class. And this was you know, uh, cement floor, number one, no mats. And the karate class... It was karate class. You know, there wasn't any tiny tigers or little dragons mm-hmm. or mighty midgets or tater tots or anything like that. You were in karate class. And so here I am. I show up at the time and I find out I'm showing up at Dave's class. Well, Dave's, Dave's class was the advanced class. And I'm kind of like, what? And here was one of the really cool things that, uh, I mean, just I learned a lesson in martial etiquette the very first day I started training. Now, the instructor was a green belt. Lauren Christensen. Now, do you know who Lauren Christensen is? That name sounds familiar. I, I should know that. I know I should. Well, let's let's say uh, uh, military policeman, Vietnam, over 20 years on the streets of Portland, cop, very well known in the real deal side mm-hmm. of things. You know, Lauren Christensen had, as a green belt was my teacher. So we're, we're talking the beginnings of major creds right there. Anyway, so I come in and it's Dave's class. The beginning class is over with. So what does Lauren do? He looks at me and I think he's 19 at the time. So, you know, uh, he was at that perfect age to be like a real knucklehead anyway. (laughs) So, but he pulls one of his blue belts over. Tony Leonetti. Tony, this kid showed up uh, an hour late for the beginner's class. Why don't you take him off to the side, show him the straight punch, the rising block, uh, climbing form, which is the forwards and kutsudachi stance and front kick. And so Tony took me off to the side and essentially delivered a private lesson. Wow. And, you know, it, it was it was 1966, so, you know, my pants were tight, so I ripped those right straight up the butt. <laughs> you know, just, like, so I've got this great big rip in my pants. And But, man, I'm doing karate. I am doing karate. This is the thing. And I fell in love. It was like jumping off the high board. And my mom, you know, she when I went back and I told her that I wanted to uh, take lessons, she coughed up the princely sum of uh, either 10 or 15 bucks a month. I can't remember how much it was. I mean, it was just, mm-hmm. you know, 1966 bucks. It was, it was still relatively cheap. Yeah. And, uh, and she thought it was going to be a six-month gig, and then I'd lose interest, and I'd go on to something else like I had with pretty much everything else. Well, 56-plus years later, <laughs> I haven't quite hit the water off the high board yet. So, <laughs> so that was my first class, my first lesson, my introduction, and wow. as you can say from there, the rest is history. So you, you said you found what was it about it that you fell in love with? What you know that very first lesson? What was it about that that drew you in and made you like, man, I want to keep doing this? I don't know. It clicked. Really? Okay. I mean, I mean, it clicked. You know, and 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 when you look at the beginnings of, you know, one is a failed baseball player, but the the other part is actually pretty funny too. Is that now? See, I was in the ninth grade at the time, and my older brother Don was the biggest hoodlum 
and the strongest fighter in the school, which means you didn't mess with Anderson. And of course, you didn't mess with Anderson's brother, Anderson's little brother, because Anderson would be there to pound you if you did. <laughs> well, see, that worked out really, really well until uh, Donnie was sent to reform school. Now, for any of the younger listeners uh, who don't know what reform school is, it's basically underage prison. Mm-hmm. You're you're 17 or younger. You can't be sent to the penitentiary or state, state jail. Good. You got sent to reform school. Well, I tell you, once Donnie was sent to reform school, being Anderson's little brother, all bets were off. <laughs> I, had, I had to watch my mouth really, really fast. So I'm this scrawny little kid who can't do anything, who whose brother protected him. And uh, so I, I was in need of self-defense lessons. Now, the last part of it was, you know, Don was the biggest hood in the school. He made out with all the girls. He was cool. I wanted to be cool. How else would I be really cool if I did karate? Whether I turned out to be cool or not, the jury's still out on that one. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was those basically two uh, impetus points, so to speak. And then the actual meeting with Dave Starkey that actually got me going in karate. And and like I said, uh, you know, it, it's funny. People have said that you know, I was a natural at it. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I was a natural or not. I knew that, you know, I was bit by the Doberman. You know, I, I was bit. It, it it took hold, and I was happy to train, and it just really revitalized me. It gave me a purpose at age 14 that I did not have. And how yeah. long did you stay at that specific school? Well, let's see. At the Marshall Recreation Center, I stayed there for two years, mm-hmm. and then I started training at the parent school over in uh, Portland. Okay. And so to go over to Portland to the uh, school over there, it would be about a 45 minute drive. Wow. And by this time I was, uh, you know, I was 16. So Mm -hmm. I I had my license and my mother, she'd let me do it as long as I put gas in the car. So somehow I'd finagle money to put gas in the car and I'd make the 45 minute uh, one way jaunt two times a week to train at the regular headquarters. Now I was with them. I was with that association until, uh, 1974 and that that was a uh that was probably one of the dumbest moves i ever did in my life not so much leaving the association but the manner in which i left the association we can cover that if you like later on and then i was finally formally evicted from the association i think in 77 oh wow so yeah so then did you at any time in those eight years you were at those two schools did you get into competition at that time Absolutely. One of the cool things at that time was uh, the only magazine that was out there was Black Belt Magazine. Mm -hmm. And at that point in time, it was a bi-monthly. So what I would do is once I found out about Black Belt Magazine and I found out, you know, basically when it would arrive at the newsstand, I'd walk about, oh, mile and a half to downtown Vancouver to a smoke shop that had magazines. And I would go in there and once every once every two months, I'd go in there and I'd dutifully buy the magazine and they would always have a technique section. And this is where you had, you know, Chuck Norris or Joe Lewis or Alan Steen or Skipper Mullins or Tom LaPuppet, some of the, some of the old timers, the, the, the pioneers, right? And I would get the magazine. I'd read it from cover to cover, not understanding hardly anything I read, but I'd read it anyway. But we get to the karate technique section and here is where I would actually learn moves that weren't taught in my school. Give you an example. Uh, there was one where uh, Chuck Norris did a fake backhand chop. The guy would do a high block and he would do a spinning back kick. So fake chop into a spinning back kick. Nice. So anyway, I would practice that at home. And then I would go to, I remember going to Lauren one time. Says, says, I want you to tell me if the spinning back kick is right. And I 
do some sort of high speed sloppy kind of back kick, et cetera. But but I I still remember the look on his face. There was just a pregnant pause, and he goes, "Yeah, something like that." <laughs> he had never seen the move before. Wow! I could tell from that he had not seen the move before, and I got it from Chuck Norris from a magazine. Uh, the backhand shop grabbed the geese leave sidekick Joe Lewis. Uh, the uh, the truly advanced technique at the time. Two kicks with the same leg without putting your foot down first. <laughs> <laughs> the low kick, high round kick, John the Tibbet. And I would learn all these things. And so, and, and these guys, they were tournament champions. Oh, here I am. I'm kind of like, oh, wow, this ought to be cool. And then, and then I find out that Steve Armstrong, who was a pioneer uh, in the Pacific Northwest, he was throwing a tournament called, let's see, there's the Seattle Open. Then he had another uh, one down in Tacoma. And I got to go up. I think I rode up with some of the guys from the school and I, I rode up and I participated in Kata because they wouldn't let juniors fight. I was 15 at the time. And so I go out and I do uh, the first, you know, Naihachi Shodan. Okay. The side-by-side form, Japanese uh, players know it, as, know it as Teki, uh, Korean players know it as Chogi. And if you do it at high speed, you're over in about 15 seconds. <laughs> we're, talk- we're not talking performance Kata here. So anyway. <laughs> I blazed through that. I'm done. And that was it. (laughs) Now, where did I place? I have no clue. (laughs) But, um, yeah, so that was my first tournament. Now, the second tournament, I was still a junior. And (laughs) this is the only time that my mother ever came to a karate match. And they had competition. They had fighting competition for juniors. Oh, that's not going to be good. Mm -hmm. And so I'm a green blue belt at the time. And... There's no hand pads, no foot pads. You're out there. I'm probably the only kid there that's wearing shin pads. I had these bony little shins that hurt a lot. And, you know, mom drives me up. And it's funny because uh, for the longest time, point competition was only point competition. And only in the 2000s or somewhere I run, did they introduce continuous fighting? Mm-hmm. Well, that's what the junior division was back in 1967. It was, it was continuous fighting. Nice. And you spar for two minutes, they'd stop. And then the judges would vote who won. See? So anyway, I'm out there and I'm, you know, I'm doing the best that I can. And I was, you know, I wasn't a great fighter at that point in time. And I take a shot in the sternum and I drop and I'm <gasps> wheezing right out of the corner of my eye. I see my mother rushing down the stands <laughs> internally. I'm going, no, no, not mom. I can't have her running in the ring and there I'm dropped from a body punch. So I get up before she gets to the ring. We restart the match and I end up losing. That's the only time she ever watched me fight. Now, now I've got to balance this out with my father. Mm-hmm. And I've told people, if anybody ever wondered where I got my sense of humor from, it was dear old dad. Well, 1971, I'm fighting in uh, Portland, and I'm uh, fighting for the Grand Championship. And back in those days, if you had a match that tied, they would split you up, send you back to your mark. You would turn around, you'd sit down for a 30-second time span. So I'm fighting Tim Jones, a strong fighter from Vancouver, Washington. And they call break, and we're we're at one-to-one or something. Now, Dad was supposed to be there. I hadn't seen him all day. It's like, okay, well, uh, crap, Dad didn't show up. So... I go back and we go back. We turn around to sit down and I hear booming out of the rafters. Hit him now. (laughs) (laughs) 
Wow. <laughs> I look up in the corner. There's my dad with this big grin on his face waving at me. You know? <laughs> That's awesome. And so, and so that wasn't the only tournament my dad went to, but anyway. Long answer to your question. That's where my tournament career started. Okay. Uh, by the time I was a brown belt, I started winning. Okay. And uh, that was in 1969. I, I won, oh, I think I won three tournaments in the row in the lightweight division. And then when I made my black belt in January 1970, I honestly had the opinion that I could go out there and I could, I could, I could beat all these black belts. You know, a lot of the guys didn't fight with strategy mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, their technique was, it was what it was. And, so anyway, my first three tournaments, I get I get beat in my first match. <laughs> <laughs> wow! So so much for the world killer, you know. <laughs> but it was in my fourth tournament, the Bremerton Open, nineteen seventy, is in the summer, uh, where I won my first grand championship, and um, I was on the road to um, my idea of karate stardom. So that's that's where that's where it started. Okay. And then if you have other questions, I can tell you turning points, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, Every once in a while, I do I do let the the, the questioner have a have a moment to speak. So, oh, no, no. <laughs> hey, the, the the listeners want to hear you, not me. So I just I just ask the questions and let you tell stories. But I'm I'm curious, just a little talk a little bit about your black belt test. That's the one thing I love hearing, especially from back then, and how much they've changed compared to now. I'm just kind of curious what your black belt test was like compared to modern day black belt tests. Mine was a speed run. Now, back in the day in 1969, the Head of the karate organization that I was in at the time, Oregon Karate Association, he shifted from doing a Korean version of Shotokan, which is called Kong Sudo. Now, Kong Sudo, that's the Korean pronunciation of the ideograms for karate do. Kong Sudo, karate do. Same yeah. thing. And the forms, uh, the katas, I didn't know that they were Shotokan katas until I picked up uh, the uh, Tsutomu Oshima translation of Funakoshi's book, Karate do Kyohan. I pick that up and I'm looking through it. I'm, oh, this hand forms. That's exactly <laughs> how we do that. Becky showed on. That's Bastai. GJ, that's Sipsu. Wait a minute. And, you know, so we were doing Korean forms of kind. Well, he was introduced to uh, Wing Chun Kung Fu, actually Bruce Lee's style of Wing Chun Kung Fu, back in, ba-dum, 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 I think it was 64-ish or thereabouts. Okay. An older student of his told him that there was this Kung Fu school up in Seattle that this guy by the name of Taki Kimura ran, and he had to check it out. He went up there and did about nine months of uh, you know, Lee's Junfan Wing Chun, which is kind of a modified Wing Chun, mm-hmm. from uh, Taki Kimura. And then he came back, and up until about 69, there were certain exotic actions, such as parry the punch and hit the guy at the same time, instead of the block chamber to the ribs and counter punch. Mm-hmm. Uh, holding our hands in this... Uh, Odd position that if you see uh, the very first Bruce Lee book that he did, you know, the palm up and the other the palm down, et cetera, you know, he would have us do that. The standard rolling punch from Wing Chun, where you punch directly from the center line, bang, 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 bang. We learned that, but but we'd never stopped doing quote unquote Kung Su until he announced, quote, the new style. And the new style uh, came out in um, 69, yeah, January 69 is when he officially announced it. And he called it Wu Ying Mun. Now, the screwy part about that was that was a mix of a uh, Mandarin and Cantonese Chinese. Wu is, is definitely Mandarin, but Ying and Mun are Cantonese dialects, right? So it'd be kind of like, uh, let's see. Let's see if I can pull this off right. It'd be like, I can't do Boston accents very well, but I'll give it a try. It'd be like, 
driving a car at the same time. My old pickup. You know, <laughs> like a Boston accent with a with, with a Texas accent. Nice. But anyway, the new style. So at this point in time, he shocked all the forms. And I was kind of like, cool by me, because by this point in time, you know, I just I want to fight terms. That's all I want to do. I just want to be a fighter. So I liked learning forms. I just didn't like practicing them. But I liked learning them, memorizing them and so forth, which plays an interesting story in my later day development. But anyway, so the black belt test actually consisted of you would perform basics and then you'd spar. And uh, so my test was, oh, geez, I don't know, about 20 minutes. Uh, I was fighting this guy. His name was Wayne Lenore. I'd never met him, but he was a bigger guy. But that doesn't say much because everybody was bigger than me at that time. (laughs) But I remember during the sparring, I mean, we both nearly knocked each other out. You know, there's one time where I took a punch to the side of the head that when I think of it, I can still feel the tuning fork going off. <laughs> and then there was one exchange where, oh, and by the way, I had nothing for hands. I was just a kicker. And how I hit him with a back chop to the neck, which rattled his cage, I don't know. But anyway, <laughs> we spar and we get done and we bow out and then they're going to go deliberate, probably mostly as to whether to promote a 17-year-old a black belt or not. <laughs> But the best fighter in the school, I still remember this to my dying day, the best fighter in the school was a guy by the name of Bill Kunkel. We nicknamed him Wild Bill because his chief thing was, he was a construction guy, so he was stronger than a big dog. He would throw a round kick, and then he would grab your gi. And then, while he was punching you, he would shake you to the left and to the right. So you're not only getting punched, but your equilibrium is getting discombobulated wow. by crazy. And, oh, yeah. I mean, it was, it was something to experience. Mm-hmm. And uh, But anyway, as, as the board was leaving, Bill looks at us and he goes, now that's what brown belts should look like. My thought at that time was, if Bill thinks I'm a good brown belt, doesn't matter whether I passed or not. You know? <laughs> and that was the one I passed. So I see, I failed two black belt tests before that. But okay. uh, the third one was a charm. And, and that one was with the right attitude. If Bill Kunkel fought, you know, I was a good brown belt. Dad gummit, that was great. So That's awesome. Yeah. So, so that's what happened on that one, yeah. Now you said uh, they're talking about 1964. So what was next then? After you left that school, what was next in your journey? Okay, yeah, that was, uh, let's see. So there's a couple of key points before I left the school okay. in 74-ish. And that was transitioning from being a, a, a regional champion to becoming uh, the beginnings of a national champion. And what occurred was, you know, after that first one in Bremerton, I was hit and miss. But the thing was, is I knew I could do it. So, so what I did was I, I just kept going to tournaments, kept going to tournaments, kept fighting, kept going to tournaments. And, you know, my attitude at the time was, you know, if I ever lost a tournament, they screwed me. So uh, <laughs> I, I was not a good loser. I was a very bad loser. <laughs> and, and did that make me a better winner? No, it just made me a really good, bad loser. It inspired me, but uh, it was it was just terrible. But anyway, 1972. The uh, top woman fighter of that school and I, her name was Pauline Short, and Pauline was a uh, a Northwest pioneer in the area of women's fighting and so forth. I could talk all day about Pauline, but this is not her interview, it's mine. So, (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, so we drove down to the International Karate Championships, and uh, I've got this full write-up in my memoirs on this, but it was fascinating because I went down there in 69 as a brown belt and met some of my heroes and I started fighting uh, in 70 as a black belt. Well, 
you know, 1970, 1971 didn't go so well, but you know, it was, it was, I was still wet behind the ears. So it's not a big deal, but 72, an interesting stroke of fate. You know, I, I, I call it the gods were smiling upon me because now the 19 internationals or uh, excuse me, the international karate championships in the seventies was the largest tournament in the country. It had 2,500 routinely, 2,500 competitors split over two days. So what you'd have is you'd have the underbelts, uh, and the kata one day, then you have the black belts the next day. Then you have the finals that night. And so here we are. We're uh, at the internationals. Like I said, the gods were smiling upon me because over in one ring, we have Benny Urquidez. We have Al Dacascos. We have Howard Jackson. We have Byung Yu. We have like the cream of the crop over this one ring. And in this other ring, we've got me. <laughs> <laughs> So I end up winning my ring. Now I'll throw something uh, uh, extra in here. We still didn't have uh, fighting pads, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I broke my hand the month before, and so I drove down with Pauline with a cast on my right hand. I competed in black belt kata the day before with my cast on my hand, and then that night uh, I ripped and tore and ripped and tore. It took me hours. <laughs> this whole thing about soaking your cast and it'll just come off. Mm-hmm. No, that cast was like, it was put there to stay. So I'm ripping and tearing doing this, you know, and my hand's not, not fully healed. So I formed a, a type of hand pad where I had the ACE bandage in the palm of my hand wrapped up. And then I'd have a, a piece of foam over the top of my arm and another ACE bandage to wrap to keep that in place. And seeing as how uh, there was no contact to the head, I could still throw my back fist mm-hmm. and it's not a problem because I'm not hitting anything. Well, I made a mistake and I punched somebody in the back and uh, I stifled the scream because that hurt, <laughs> hurt like a big dog. But I go through my ring, I win the ring. And it's, wow, I'm fighting for first place in the lightweight division of 72 International Karate Championships. This is like wild. This is beyond my wildest dreams. And then the gods smiled upon me again because before the match, Byung Yu was showing off to a bunch of his fans and he's doing this jump kick and that jump kick and he's doing this and that and the next thing not knowing that his opponent is sitting about 20 feet away watching him mm. and my come away thought on that is he's not that quick he's not that fast so we get out there right and so they call the lightweight division one of the things i knew about young Yu is that if he was if he was like really confident that the other person was a nobody or whatever he'd do all the spine kick jazz well he comes at me with flying kick, and I drop down, and I spear him right in the groin with a drop side kick. <laughs> I have a picture of that. Nice. Yeah. Two flags. Two out of the five flags. Dang. No point. He comes in again. Uh, this time, it's not a kick. It's a punch. I jump away. I slap down the punch. I counter punch to his face. Two flags, <laughs> not three. Dang. Now, we get into overtime. At this point in time, I think Byung Yu has finally had the epiphany that this is not some rube who fell off the turnip truck. <laughs> and he, he's, he's got to watch it. And the interesting thing that I knew about him was that once he stopped all his comedy, his bread and butter was a left-hand lunge punch. Now, see, I watched these guys. I, I watched all these guys. And whether I could execute or not, I watched them for strengths and weaknesses. And he was down to bread and butter time. So we go into overtime. And both of us are cautious, 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 like you wouldn't believe. We had a 19-minute no score over time. Wow. The boos, the boos are nearly (laughs) deafening because there is, I mean, we're playing a chess match. Mm -hmm. We're playing a chess match. And 
I am not going to give up this one without a fight. I'm not bowing down to this guy at all. And he's not taking any chances. So he twitches, I jump, I twitch, he jumps. That was the pattern. Okay, so I'm thinking, okay, this is going on too long. The moment he moves, because my right leg is forward, the moment he moves, I'm going to hit him with a left hand reverse punch right when he comes in. Okay, he started to move. I shift my hips. Wham! He hit me dead center in the chest. <laughs> I mean, he spared me. And it was it was cleaner than the cleanest whistle that you ever saw. Kawamo. Oh, wow. So I take second place at the internationals, but that was my first stepping stone. Now, eight months later, Mr. Armstrong, he asked me if, I, if I'm going to the U.S. championships uh, in Dallas, Texas. And I go, no, I don't have the money. And he says, well, look, I'll spot you. So I think like the plane ticket was like 125 bucks or something in 1973 money. So, so I go down there and I stay with him and uh, we go to the, uh, the U.S. championships. And I had a couple things happen there, which is really, really interesting. The night before, Mike Anderson is coming out with professional karate magazine and he's got the country divided up into this that and the next thing he's, and he's got the northwest oh man washington oregon idaho all the way down to northern california i mean this great big huge expanse and at this point in time of my career you know anytime i was on the road i was mr joe respectful now at home i, w- I thought i was the white muhammad ali so i was like <laughs> this cocky little guy that won things and so forth and ticked off the traditionalists but when I was on the road, I really minded my manners. So we're talking with him, and I just happened to mention to him about why this great big expanse for the Pacific Northwest. And he starts going on, well, you know, this this is you know a great big area. There's hardly anybody. There's hardly, you know, there's, only, there's only one person we've even heard of up in up in uh, Oregon or Washington. And you know, there's a whole bunch of nobodies up there, and, and like that. Well, see, I find out after the tournament, we get talking after I win. Uh, that, oh, you're the guy that I was talking about. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. But so anyway, I had this, this turning point match. And if I ever run into the guy, I'm going to buy him a beer. I don't drink beer anymore, but doggone it. I'll buy him a beer. Now, Texas was known as the roughest game in town. Ed Parker said that a point in Texas is first degree murder in California. <laughs> now, the fascinating thing is, yeah, it was the roughest game in town, but it was the cleanest game in town. You knew what you expected. I mean, you you knew what was happening, and these were the ring rules, and there you go. And and nobody got mad at anybody. Everybody just fought like everybody owed everybody money. So anyway, my first match, like I said, if I ever meet this guy, I will definitely buy him a beer because this was a turning point in my career. His name was Dennis Passaretti. He was one of George Pizzari's guys, Kempel guy from New England. And I followed all the magazines, so I knew who Kid Paz was. And he had this great big sign on the back of his key, Kid Paz. And he's my first match. So now, back in those days, when they called break, they stopped the clock. And, and this plays in it. So we get out there. They say go. First thing, I hit him with a low round kick to the groin. Pow! He punches me dead in the face. I go back to my line and think, okay, I got the point for the groin kick. Or I got the point for the contact call. Okay, this is good. Chief referee. Point. Straight punch. <laughs> what? Okay. Same thing. Next one. Bam! I hit him with a low groin kick. Pow! He hits me in the mouth. This, this time I've got blood. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to get the point for the kick. Or he drew blood. I'm going to get a point for that. Point. Straight punch. I'm down two to nothing. And it's like, oh, you aren't in Kansas anymore, Toto. I had to get with it or give up. Okay. One of the things I could do uh, during my fighting career is I could analyze and think at computer speed. Okay, what is what has Dennis Passerady done? 
He blitzed right off the line. What is he going to do for that third point? Well, I doubt he's going to protect his lead. He's coming at me. So I face him with my right leg forward. They say start. He runs right into a side kick. Wham! Point kick. Second time, they say start. Wham! He runs into my spinning back kick. Third time, wham! He runs into my side kick. With the stop start of the stopwatch, that match took nine seconds, and I won. Now, I could have either gotten whiny about the contact. Hey, I'm getting hit in the face. You're not supposed to hit in the face. You're supposed to have control. Blah, 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 blah. Or I could get off the pot. And it was like, okay, it's time to man up. You're in Texas. And that match was a huge turning point for me. Now, second interesting turning point. So I end up fighting for first place in lightweight division. Again, second major tournament in the United States that I went to, and I'm fighting for first. And I'm fighting a guy by the name of Demetrius Havanis. He had the nickname of the Golden Greek. But this time, I outpoint him. And Mr. Armstrong, he is he is just so flipped out because it's been his contention that the Pacific Northwest fighters are as good as anywhere across the country. They just don't travel. Well, I traveled, and I beat the Greek. He comes barreling down. He's this great big guy. Barreling down. Picks me up, swings me around, and goes, you fucker, you did it. And <laughs> I mean, it was really cool. Now, here's the fascinating thing. And I'll tell you two little stories here about that, that came out of that. Stuart Rowe, a Kajakembo st- uh, stylist in, um, was he around Stockton, Sacramento, somewhere around San Leandro, somewhere around there. Okay. He mentioned to me that, uh, yeah, I heard you be Greek in Texas. And he goes, I can't believe it. And I looked at him like, and I gave him this look of, you've got to be kidding me. And he's, he recognized, look, he said, no, 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 no. You misunderstand me. It's not that I didn't think you could beat him. Nobody beats the Greek in Texas. <laughs> I was like, oh, and I got the Greek in Texas. Now, many, many years later, I'm doing a seminar, an Arnis seminar, which we can talk about Arnis later because that's another turning point in my life. But uh, Keith Yates, and I'm talking with Keith Yates, and it, it, it was pretty funny because we're at the karate seminar. Instead of after the summer going for a beer, all the guys I'm with are teetotalers. So we're actually at Starbucks. <laughs> we're, we're sipping coffee at Starbucks. And he asked me, he said, Dan, I got a question for you. Uh, yeah, go ahead. So when did you move from Texas to the Pacific Northwest? And I smiled at him and said, <laughs> Keith, I wasn't born in Texas. I live under 35 miles from where I was born. I was born in Washington. I've always been in the Pacific Northwest. And I said, well, but your question intrigues me. Why do you ask? And he goes, well, you're so well thought of down here in Texas. I just figured you're a Texan. <laughs> and I looked at him and said, buddy, you do not know how much that is a compliment. Thank you very, very much. And and the funny thing is, is that, oh gosh, what was it? Uh, it's another, I got, one of these days, I got to write down more of these stories. because I broke my memoirs and I got a lot of funny stories. In them, but here's another funny story. I was down in Texas with uh, doing a seminar and a buddy of mine, Rudy uh, Smedley, who is a national champion, a WACO world champion. I happen to mention that, you know, I, I, I kind of consider myself an honorary Texan because, uh, you know, I, I've been down here and I love Texas, et cetera. So right then he took up a vote of everybody in the seminar as to whether I should be declared a natural Texan <laughs> or not. It was a unanimous vote. Nice. I am now a native Texan and, uh, and I was voted in. So and, and this all came out of the U.S. championships in uh, in Dallas, Texas, 1973. So, you know, I was winning and. In about 1974, uh, things were fraying. I'm, I'm going to lead to the split up here. Uh, things were fraying between uh, the chief instructor and I. And 
mostly it was over training things because I'm an avid reader. I read martial arts books. I read boxing books, et cetera. And my own approach to my training was sparring. If I'm going to free fight, train it free fighting. And he wanted me to lift weights and run. I don't lift weights. And trust me, I <laughs> don't run. And so I build up my stamina by sparring. I had a great metabolism at that time. Still have a really good one for my age. And so I would burn through sparring partners. I'd line up probably seven or eight sparring partners and spar one until that one was just dripping wet, red-faced, dead. Okay, bring on the next one. Bring on the next one. Bring on the next one. Now, what they didn't know was I knew when to explode and when not to. So I was using high energy when I needed to use high energy. And then I was positioning and strategizing during the rest of the time. So that was part of it. But you know, he wanted me to run. He wanted me to lift weights. I wouldn't do this. And so things are getting kind of frayed here. And then at top 10 nationals, um, uh, springish, April or May, something like that. No, uh, excuse me, May or June. I'm sorry, May or June. I'm seated in lightweight finals. I'm rated in the top 20. This is really cool, et cetera. And it's the first time that I get spanked. Now, I didn't get beat. I didn't barely lose. I got spanked. I have never been uh, beat five to nothing before. And Gordon Franks beat me five minutes. I warmed up with Gordon Franks. I was not impressed. Probably neither was he because he came out and beat me. <laughs> and and yeah, I, I, I would love to complain about the judging. It wasn't the judging. Gordon had my number. Wow. And so I'm depressed. It's like, man, things are going bad between the chief instructor and I. And every once in a while, I will do something which is incredibly right. And so I, I called up the guy who was sponsoring me, Tom Levack, and I said, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, Tom, I don't know what to do. I'm teaching all the time. I don't have time to train, uh, bas basically moaning and groaning, right? And he says over the phone, says, well, you know, Dan, there's a, there's a saying, most men lead lives of quiet desperation. And the next moment I, is when I did something incredibly right, which was, Tom, what does that mean? Because <laughs> I, I didn't understand what the saying meant. He goes, well, a lot of people go through life wishing that they had done something, but they decided against it and they regret it ever since. Mm -hmm. And it was right then when I decided to quit teaching. I gave my two weeks notice. Now, here's the interesting thing. I gave my two weeks notice. And a month after that, I'm on the, uh, I'm at the International Karate Championships again. And we have a throw together team. Now, this throw together team, myself, top 10 fighter, Jerry Piddington, top 10 fighter, Roy Kerbin. Uh, one of Jerry Pittington's uh, students, Alan Miller, and regional hotshot from New Mexico, Pete Rubino. So we threw this team together. Ed Parker, he he even paid our uh, entry fee for the team. Of course, wow. he took it out of our winnings. But <laughs> <laughs> And we nicknamed ourselves the Queen Mary team because the Queen Mary was docked in Long Beach, California. Nice. We ended the Black Karate Federation's stranglehold on the team championships. We were the first teams outside of the BKF to win the team championships. I was the anchor man. I took the match with Hot Dog Harvey, good friend of mine, wonderful fighter, beat him in overtime by a point. Here's the difference between being spanked by Gordy Franks and then deciding, okay, I'm going to go for it. Total mental turnaround. After that, I exited the main school, trained in a satellite school for about a year and a half, really got involved in just... Stupid internal politics, unbelievable waste of time. Yep. And 
And it's just brilliant waste of time on my part. And uh, until finally, when I had several students, I got a letter from Bruce, who was head of the school, officially kicking me out. And at that point in time, it was really interesting because it was, um, you know, I was top 20, wasn't quite top 10 yet. And in all this, uh, what I, I like to call reindeer games now, and all this, and all these reindeer games between Bruce and I, uh, one of the things that was going around was that I, you know, I owe everything that I have to him, and there's no way I was going to be a big winner if if he wasn't around. <laughs> and then, you know, and my comments are, you know, hey, my hand, my hand is the one that's in the ring. Give me a break. So anyway, it was an interesting testing period because, gosh, is it true? Is it not true? Ooh, this is kind of spooky. Well, I was rated in the top 20 while I was uh, in with the Oregon Karate Association. I broke through into the top 10 when I was on my own. Nice. So I guess that question answers itself. <laughs> yeah. But uh, uh, it, it, it was a huge turning point. Huge turning point. You know, there's a lot of turning points in my life, mm-hmm. martial arts boys, where it could have gone one way or the other. And luckily for me, some very, very important ones, I've taken the right road. And uh, anyway, so that, that that's what I started doing after I left uh, the karate school. How's yeah. that for a long answer? Yeah, that's good. <laughs> I like it. So so what, what led you to decide to kind of create your own style then? Oh, well, the official reason that I was kicked out was there was a, there was an article and it had several of the um, members of Oregon Karate Association, including myself discussing how we're training. And uh, uh, I think it was an article on Bruce, the head guy, and then uh, others of us chimed in. And Tom had mentioned that I'm doing sort of a sort of an American freestyle karate. He was the one who actually came up with the phrase, not me. And when I mentioned in another one, it's like, well, I don't quite, you know, I mean, I don't quite consider myself an organizational black belt because I'd been kicked out for a little while, but I, you know, consider myself a style black belt. Well, that's, where he got upset and I, uh, for, you know, speaking against the style, blah, 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 and gave me my walking papers. I wish I had saved that letter. I think it'd be like really good. But anyway, back in 74, I had the concept of a free fighting book and I had written it out and I sent uh, the text to Tunnel Publishing in, uh, I think I sent it to Japan because they, they also had an office in uh, Vermont and they were interested I was like, oh, wow, this ought to be cool. Now, but when I took the photos, instead of taking studio shots and spending the princely sum of 500 bucks or something, I did the photos myself and they didn't like the photos. So they ended up rejecting the book. Okay. So I cried on my pillow for a little bit and kind of, uh, in 1979, I think. I know I'm in California. I can't remember if I'm in LA or San Francisco, but I'm talking with the editor of uh, Inside Kung Fu. And his name is Paul Maslach. Now, Paul had produced a couple of books on, on, on free fighting, but you could tell from the Kung Fu uniform that he wore and some of the postures, et cetera. I don't think he did that much fighting. The theories were all very, very good, but you know, I kind of reserved my judgment on you know whether he could actually fight fight or not. Well, he and I are talking and I mentioned to him that, uh, you know, I've got this book and I tell him about the tale of Tuttle publishing and so forth. And, and uh, yeah, I'd like to do a book. And so he looks at me and he goes, Dan, if you write it, I'll publish it. Nice. And I go, are you sure? He goes, yeah, you write it and I'll publish it. It was a handshake. That's all that was needed. Well, prior to that, 
because of my split with the uh, the style, I had taken Tom's phrase, American Freestyle Karate, and kind of went, okay, that's what I'm doing. And back then, I was known as a bit of a hotshot and a bit of a rebel. I was the first person in the Northwest, and probably on the West Coast, to name a karate style with an American name. I wish I could say it across the country, but Karim Abdullah beat me to it when uh, he named his system the KA system. Okay. So I would have to say that I'm, yeah. The other thing is I'm a bit of a karate historian. So uh, I know he beat me to that. Others always had some sort of like oriental name that was attached with it, such as uh, Peter Urban. He taught USA Goju. Mm-hmm. Well, Goju is Japanese or Frank Ruiz, Nisei Goju, which is his form of Goju-ru or Ron Van Cleef, Chinese Goju. Yep. But there was still this attachment to the phrase, you know, with me, American freestyle karate, uh, was much closer to what I was doing because I wasn't doing any set curriculum. It was more of, I likened it at the time to how a boxer trains in a gym. You know, if you get somebody who's got, who's got a natural jab, okay, good. They're going to work on that jab. But you get somebody who's a Joe Fraser type or a Mike Tyson type who wants to go in and bang. Okay. You steer them in that direction. And uh, the techniques, the moves, they're all the same. A jab is a jab, a hook is a hook, but what drives the fighter? What is the fighter's own personal style as opposed to, let's say, style slash curriculum slash school like you'd get with Shotokan Karate or Taekwondo or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, And that's what I like in American freestyle too. Now, the other thing was that when I look at karate, and when I still look at karate, is that I'm an American. I teach Americans. I don't use any of the uh, you know, Japanese or Korean terms because my students don't speak Japanese or Korean. When I teach Filipino martial arts, yeah, I'll use American terms except for certain techniques that have been given very, very exact names. And then the, the concept, which was influenced by Bruce Lee at the time, which I think everybody was, was, was you know, if a jab works, use it. Yep. If the front leg round kick works, use it. Don't be restricted by the oriental stylisms that govern the art, you know. And today, oh, that's old hat. I mean, that's like. You'll, you'll see Shotokan people flipping off uh, double, triple round kicks in the uh, uh, WKA competitions, et cetera. Yep. But back then, this was pretty heretical stuff. But the cool thing was, is that by this time, it was like, great. If you want to have any problems with it, meet me in the ring because I will whip you in the ring. And I will back it up by whipping you in the ring. I'm much more tactful now. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably a good thing. It's a, well, it's a good thing. Yeah, I'm not young anymore. But anyway, <laughs> but that's how I came up with the name of American Freestyle Karate. And then when the book came out, and this funny story on the book, because, you know, like I told you that, you know, Paul had said that he'd publish it. Well, I went back and, you know, I did not, I couldn't type with beams. I mean, I could, I could type okay, but not really, really great. You know, I hand wrote the thing. Oh, wow. And then I would, and then where we were was I, where I was working at the time, I'd take it over to the steno pool. There was uh, one of the secretaries who would type it up for me three cents a page. So anyway, by the time that we got done, I'd gone through three rough drafts of it and then got ready to send it down to L.A. Then when we went down to L.A. to shoot the photos, I thought, okay, this is going to be my only shot because I work in the printing business already. I know what it takes cost-wise to print up various things. So if this publishing company is going to print it up, man, I'm going to give it my all. So I did. I had outlined how many photos were needed for every single sequence. Because one of the things that uh, drove me nuts about martial arts books at that time was that the in-between actions were never there. How did you get from point A to point B in only three photos? It's like there, there are so many transition actions that, that weren't shown. Well, 
I had all the transition actions and it took us one day, I think probably uh, eight hours broken up by lunch. We shoot about 1200 photos. Nice. And the uh, photographer, Ed Ikuda, who was very well known for doing great martial arts photography at the time, he said he's never seen anybody so organized during the life. That, that should have taken at least two days, but we nailed it in one. That's cool. And, and because of space limitations, they only used about 750 photos, <laughs> which is like rats. <laughs> yeah. But I had my book. That's probably why they had to use uh, such small font. You know, I mean, you go blind trying to read the original version of that book <laughs> because the font's so small. But the thing was, is that that was the book I always wanted to read. Nobody had written it. Nobody, nobody had gone back past the basic exercises or the basic self-defense or the historic book or the primer. It was like, phooey, this is the type of book that I want to read. And as it turned out, uh, it was a huge success because they printed it. They're the ones who made all the money on it. But, yeah. uh, but I would get reports about how you know the book had changed in sparring. They changed their life in sparring. They, they got better at competition. I had uh, numerous dojos telling me that it was required reading for belt ranks. Wow. And so forth. Yeah. I mean, just so, you know, that A, stroke the ego. But at the same time, it was such a wonderful contribution to American martial arts. You know, it was like, wow. And that's one of the reasons why I continue, you know, to write books and shoot videos to this day is that I've always had a viewpoint that if I can do it, anybody can do it. Yep. Now, the trick is, okay, you may need to understand it the way that I understand it. Okay, that's not a problem. That burden is on me. Okay, good. I take on that challenge. I happily take on that challenge because there were pretty much everybody that I met, with the exception of Joe Lewis was positive about what I was doing. Even if it was just a handshake or a pat on the back, mm -hmm. there were these inspirations, you know, and that's a whole nother subject that we can go into, but uh, there were these inspirations. And so my job, now that I'm done being, you know, the karate chopper and the big uh, uh, tournament star, blah, 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 is can I bring inspiration to somebody else to where they have the same experience or somewhat the same experience that I did? and have a really positive martial arts experience. And if I can, great. I did my job well. So I can tell you out of a uh, 113 previous episodes, I've actually had a handful of guests already mention your book. So it's definitely had some impact. That's nice to know, you know, because uh, the, uh, you know, like I said, the, 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 the reason for it is that nobody had written it. I mean, you know, the, the closest thing might've been, you know, like the Tao of Jeet Kune Do by Bruce Lee. Mm -hmm. But the thing was, is that was a compilation of his handwritten notes and drawings. Yeah. It, it didn't lead you anywhere. Yeah. And you already had to be experienced to understand half the stuff that he wrote in there. Yeah. It was never meant to be a book. That's the thing. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And this one was very much meant to be, you know, something that you can learn from. And then it was nice that I had a rep at that time of being, you know, a, a tournament fighter and a successful one and good. Here are the keys to my success. And then the other thing, which I lucked out on, which I didn't even think of at the time, but I also spoke in plain English. I didn't talk down to anybody. I didn't get overly uh, technical with, with physics or whatever. I guess this is what you get when you, you're only a high school graduate. That was one of the things that other people had spoken about was that it communicated and it got across to where they could easily read it. And it's like, oh, yeah, OK, this is this is brilliant. This is I absolutely love that. Because that cool. was, that was the intention. Yeah. 
And I will definitely put links for your your online library and all your books that oh. I DVDs and everything once the show comes out. So because I've been looking okay. through it and there's there's many in there I didn't even know about. So I'm gonna I'll probably be adding more books to my library. So <laughs> that's why I love doing this. I've I've added so many more books to my library in the last two years. <laughs> I boy do I understand that. I've got a uh, a thing that I go by, and that is if I learn one thing from a book, mm-hmm. it just paid for itself. Yep. The only bad part is I used to read so much more uh, before I started doing the podcast. The podcast takes up a lot of time, but I used yeah. to, I used to read a book a week, and yeah. now oh, I'm yeah. I'm lucky if I maybe get four or five a year. Unfortunately, so I am right there with you because I uh, man i I haven't retired yet. So between projects and running the dojo, I haven't got the time. Yeah. But as long as we're talking about books, uh, let me tell you about my latest one. Which definitely the latest one is that. It has to do with quotes from other books oh, cool. and how they've, how they've impacted my own martial arts. And they go into several categories, either A, something I learned from, or another category is that something which explains what I'm doing to me that I didn't know what I was doing. And another category is that it explains something that I do, but the words say it better than I do. And, you know, my wife, Marie, had mentioned, but, oh, now I know why you read all these books. You're actually learning something. Yes, dear. She's used to be being the head guy, uh, you know, the super Dan, et cetera, but never quite considered that, you know, hey, I'm still on the learning journey. And um, let me give you an example. This is really good. But so Robert Twigger, he wrote this book called Angry White Pajamas. Yep, I've heard of it. Many of my guests have talked about it. Angry White Pajamas. It's on the must-read list. It's on the must-read list. Because what you've got is you got three guys who are basically doing relatively nothing in Japan. And Robert Trigger will probably shoot me in the foot if he ever hears this. But, I mean, they're basically acting like a bunch of losers. And they don't know what to do. And they're, they're, they're drifting through life and yada, 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 yada. So, anyway, they decide, what the heck? Let's take Aikido. And so they take Aikido and they, uh, they take it to Yoshinkan which is uh, Gozo Shioda's branch, which is known for being more of a uh, realism branch of Aikido. And then, I don't know which one of them, but one of them gets the hot idea of, let's take the special police course. You can make Shodan in one year. <laughs> but this special police course is known for being roughneck and thug business. I mean, this is hard training. This is brutal stuff. And he tells the tale of doing the training, right? And it's just very good reading. But he mentions this one thing. He goes, you know, and this is a horrible misquote, uh, except for the last part. But he says that uh, Don King and Mike Tyson visited. And, you know, they mentioned they wanted to see the real thing. So the chief instructor of the school, the founder of the school, Gozo Shioda, who uh, they called Kancho. I'm not, I don't know what the translation for Kancho is. Probably like a Shihan or something like that. But he went through his routine. And he's pitching guys and he's throwing guys and he's arm locking guys and he's defending guys against knives and he's throwing them through the air. And, and both Mike Tyson and Don uh, King, you know, they agreed it was the real thing. And then Tyson goes, you know, it's all in the knees, isn't it? The top of my head blew off right when I read that line because that's what I do, but that's not how I articulated it. I'm huge on using body rotation, using body torque, using the entire body, but it all goes through the mobility of the knees. And it was like, ah, uh, that one line, 
paid for the book. That's exactly what I do. It's all in the knees. Nice. And so anyway, any kind of book like that, that, uh, you know, okay, Aikido, just for, just for fun of it. Uh, you go back to the earliest, I think it's the 1932 edition of Aikido by the founder, Ueshiba. So now he's a younger man. He's a roughneck and thug. And I say that very affectionately because everybody remembers him as the old old man with the wispy beard, et cetera. Yep. Not many people remember him as being the five foot tall, 200 pound roughneck. That was like a powerhouse in Daito Ryu, Aiki Jujutsu, which is just a roughneck and thug system. Anyway, prior to any type of lock or throw, what did he do? He hit the guy. You see a body punch or you see a face punch and then you see the follow. Wow. Not the catch and pitch. Bang! Then he executes. And you got this 200 pound, five foot guy. So you got this guy who's stocky as a bull whapping you one. Then he executes. It's like, uh huh. <laughs> it's like, it's like, like my buddy, uh, uh, Ron McKinney from, I think, South Carolina says, shock before you lock, deliver a blow before you throw. This is why I love books. There's so many little things that you can pick up from them that can greatly impact what you do. So, mm-hmm. This book that I'm working on right now, I delineate a number of the things that impacted me. You know, why have I gone in thus and such direction? There's a whole section on internal martial arts, which most people, you hear about internal martial arts, and it's this chi cultivation, and it's this slow motion tai chi, and it's the push hands, and it's the sensitivity, and it's how you do this or that with no effort, or you project your key into somebody, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Well, there's this guy by the name in uh, California. His name is Tim Cartmel, and he uh, teaches at a BJJ school down in LA now, I believe. And his definition has nothing to do with chi, but it has to do with angles, uh, full body use instead of segmented use, timing, alignment, all of these brought into play against a weaker position of your opponent. And that's internal. Nice. And it's like, this is, oh, you mean this is what I've been doing ever since I've been, uh, ever since I started training in modern arness with Remy Presses. I've been figuring out the angles. I've been figuring out the easier way of doing things. I've been figuring out how to use my body right. Mm-hmm. In the words of Gomer Pyle, well, golly. <laughs> nice. <laughs> it's probably the only, the only interview where somebody quoted <laughs> Gomer Pyle. So there you go. It might be. So I'm, I'm, glad, you, I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm, how did, what led you to Remy? How did, how did that uh, relationship start? Kind of what led you to Arnis and Escrima? Okay. So this is, this is a funny story. And, uh, as most of my stories are kind of funny, but this one, this one was really good. So here we are in, uh, there's a buddy of mine, Fred King, Kung Fu guy, uh, Kaju Kembo guy. And he loved bringing all these guys in for seminars. He'd bring it and he'd tell me, Danny, Danny, I got, uh, you know, this guy's doing a, uh, uh, a Tai Chi seminar. He ought to come. He says, no, no, don't bother me. Does he fight? I'll hit him in the face. Yeah, this guy just said, Danny, I got this Qi Gong guy. This guy's like, really good stuff. He says, yeah, 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 yeah. Right, right, right. No. Well, anyway. Yeah, and Fred and I trained together, even though we're two different styles, but we would get together every week and bang. So we're down at a tournament down in Oakland, California, and we're rooming together. And at this point, I'm going to switch over to my mindset at the time because it makes for a lot better story. And he's got this, he's got this professor guy with him and this kind of short, stocky little guy. And it's kind of like, yeah, 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 okay. And this, and this professor guy keeps wanting to talk to me. And I, 
I can't understand him. He's, his English is thick and it's very accented and, and I can't shake him. And it's like, ah, come on. So anyway, the night before the tournament, I, you know, I, I have my usual ritual of attempting to drain the alcohol reserves of whatever hotel that I'm at. (laughs) And, you know, we go to sleep and the next morning I hear this, this pat, 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 pat. And these guys are doing trapping hands and it's six in the morning and I'm going to, come on, it's six in the morning. I pull the covers over my head and I hear silence. They stop. An hour later, I hear from a distance, clack, 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 clack. Now these knuckleheads are down in the parking lot doing Cinewally drills. It's jeez. Anyway, so, you know, the, the day of the tournament comes and I'm seated in the finals. So Fred fights during the day and I don't fight and I fight in the finals and so forth. And, you know, we, we, we have this intermission and I cannot shake this guy. Now, see, by this time, I'm looking for a rope and a rafter because I'm going to hang myself. <laughs> I just I just can't get rid of this guy. And now he starts talking about the time that he was jumped by three guys in a subway in uh, New York City. And I don't know if I physically rolled my eyes. I know I spiritually rolled my eyes. He's like, Daddy, Daddy, you grab my hand. You grab my wrist. And I'm going, oh, God, kill me now. And then he did something which entirely changed my martial arts life. He did this, this type of walk-away move that I've seen in Aikido books and uh, jujitsu books and just this real simple dink thing to break the grip of the hand on the wrist, right? Mm-hmm. Now, this is 1979, so I've been fighting as a black belt for nine years. I've been fighting at national tournaments. I have seen every kind of confidence that you've ever seen. I have seen Jeff Smith own the arena when he walks in the door. I've seen uh, people attempt to bust up Bill Wallace because Bill was, uh, he was a pointer. He wasn't a banger at the time. And Bill Carey, I've seen the quiet confidence of Howard Jackson or Steve Muhammad. I've seen blustery attempts at confidence to try and rattle your opponent. When he executed this move, he did it as though it never occurred to him that it wouldn't work. And I saw that. And it was like, whoa, I'd better keep my eye on this guy. I mean, I, I pivoted 180, 180 degrees. So... He did a two-day seminar, I don't know, three or four months later up in the Pacific Northwest, and I signed up for it. And just like my very first karate lesson, I dove off the high board. Uh, here was an art that wasn't six-foot bow staff or nunchakus or kama or sai. You know, it was just this 30-inch long stick that translated an empty hand, and it was sensible. That was the first thing that nailed me about it. Now, in his execution, what really killed me was his ability to disarm you without using force or without going high-speed ballistic on you. You had a cane, you struck, he blocked, he had a hold of your cane. Somehow you didn't have your cane anymore. It's like, what the hell just happened? And it was amazing. Nice. Now, the timing on this was really brilliant because I'm starting to wind down my competition career. I had achieved every goal I had. It was starting to lose a little bit of the luster. Where would I go now? And I remember having a talk with uh, Steve Fisher, and he had said to me, you know, said, Dan, you're a martial artist. I said, no, no, Steve, you're wrong. I'm, I'm, I'm a karate jock. I said, no, mm. 
you're a martial artist. Now, see, he knew years before I did that I was a martial artist instead of a karate <laughs> job. But it, it segued into, okay, so I'm waning interest in uh, tournaments. Here's this other art, which makes sense. And initially, it was uh, it was disarms, but it was also the concept of the flow. And, I mean, I was still a young buck at the time. So, you know, I could do all the double, triple kicks, and I could go uh, initial move, initial speed, quick bursts of energy, yada, yada, yada. But I knew I wasn't over with with martial arts. And what his modern art is, it was, it was broad-based enough that it encompassed a very, very major portion of the martial arts pie that I had read about, but I hadn't had. See, in the karate school, it was kick and punch. Mm -hmm. It was no joint locks. It was no uh, leveraging angles. It wasn't throws. Uh, it wasn't weapons. It was kick and punch. And I was quite good at kick and punch. But weapons, no. On maximizing anything other than youthful exuberance, not really. And the fascinating thing was, you know, Professor Remy was all about the flow, about the flow of action, continuity of motion. So if you figure Tai Chi on steroids, okay, that was his idea of the flow. It wasn't ballistic. It could go very fast. It could go very strong, but it could go also go in like continuity of action, continuity of motion, and so forth. And this became the guiding light of what I would do karate-wise in the years to come. Okay. Now. Here's the interesting thing. If you go to YouTube, or better yet, you, you've probably seen my books and you went to my uh -huh. uh, uh, website, and which yep. means you may have seen me move recently. Mm -hmm. I don't know if, if so or not. Unless you've cheated or unless I told you, how old am I? <sighs> I'd have to do the math. <laughs> I should know for sure. but No, don't, don't do the yeah. math. Go by watching me. How old am I? Well, I think you're about 15 years older than me if I... If if I remember correctly. So that means you're probably about 64. Not even close. No. I'm 70. Oh, I'm wow. 70. Okay. I'm 70. And what has kept my body to being mobile has been the flow. Okay. I don't move like a lot of other 70 year olds, you know, uh, especially if they're only karate based, Yeah. you know, cause they've been doing all this ballistic stuff, uh, overworking the elbows and the knees, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And while I've been like detouring off into the flow, and, you know, knock on wood, I haven't done any, um, you know, heavy concussions or broken my arm or this and that. I did have a hip replacement four years ago. But, you know, you take a look at a lot of mid-50 to 60-year-olds, and there's a number of them who are in worse shape than I am. Yep. And, and it's not because I'm eating healthy. It's not because I'm Arnold. It was the flow. So from that uh, uh <laughs> You know, and I, I sit and I reflect on it now. It's like, yeah, I, I don't know why Professor Remy had the patience to put up with the nonsense at that time in Oakland. You know, maybe because he was just plain old interested in me as a person, or maybe it was a cultivation point. Says, oh, yeah, you know, if I get, if I get Super Dan training with me, you know, I've got more street creds or whatever. I mean, <laughs> who knows? Who knows? I really don't care because what I've gotten out of the art in terms of my own personal martial arts expression, as well as just basically saving my body, it's it's worth it. I mean, it is just one hundred percent worth it, and uh, it's something that I'm still fascinated by because there are many facets to the art, and it's led to uh, several very very good friendships. Yeah, I mean, it's led to one that's not so good, but you know, 
<laughs> there you go. That's life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, that five bucks will get you a cup of coffee. So what can I say? There you go. So, nice. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I just like, as you're talking, I'm looking through your site and all your books. And like I said, I'm going to definitely be placing an order because there's some good stuff out there. So and I will, oh, good. and I'll put links well, and send more people there too. So, <laughs> well, thank you. Well, well, what, what you, uh, uh, what you can do is, uh, text, you know, text me later and tell me what you're interested in. Okay. And then what I can do is I can actually steer you to something that will actually uh, answer your questions or, you know, that sort of thing. Perfect. You know, I mean, if you want, you can buy the entire collection. I am not. <laughs> I would probably love that. I don't think my wife would. <laughs> I, I, I totally understand. But I, I thought, well, hey. A little cheesy sales yeah. pitch at this point is, hey. is a is a good idea. I see. I am hoping if, if we when we move into a new house, I actually I would love to have a library, a room that was just full of books, and one whole wall would be martial arts books. So we'll oh. see. Oh. <laughs> I, I I tell you, I am with you there. We've got a couple of uh, bookshelves at home, but my martial arts library is here at the school. Nice and. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I keep thinking, God, I should take it home because when I'm at the school, I don't have time to read. Mm-hmm. But then again, we don't have space in the house for my martial exactly. arts. <laughs> I know I had to, most of mine, I used to have them in my recording studio and I, I had to expand my studio a little bit. So most of my books are in tubs right now in my garage. So I need to, I need a place yeah. to put them out again and start reading. But I understand that. Yeah, I, I've got, I've got to go through, uh, in fact, what I, what I plan on doing one of these hundreds of years is uh, going through every single book. And seeing where I've hash marked a quotation and then jotting down the quotation. So I have one document, like one uh, word doc that has every single quote that I thought was important in that's every cool. single book. That's really cool. You know, that that's, if I were patient on the book that I'm writing now, that's probably what I would do. Okay. You know, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. I, I can tell so. this was in a long haul, but anyway. Well, I have some fun questions to kind of close out the interview. So we'll, we'll yeah, the first one is in all your years of martial arts, is there one philosophy you've learned that stands out? It rises to the top of your list. You keep coming back to it. Uh, yeah, actually it's no matter what reason why you're doing martial arts, unless if it's meant to, uh, uh, you know, beat up on somebody else, it's valid. Okay. You know, you're, you're, uh, everybody has the reasons and when you get into styles or whatever, you know, they may say, well, you're not serious. So, wait a minute. <laughs> this this is why I'm going to do it. You know, I like to meet people. Karate school seems like a great place to meet people. That is true. Oh, that isn't why you take karate. <laughs> yeah, it is. You're not going to misuse it, you know, or physical health or uh, being a tournament champion or being a kata champion or just, you know, what you get is you get the usual. Well, yep. I want to be a champion or I want to learn self-defense or I want to be more confident. How about if you want to sweat? Yep. Well, that's a, that's a valid reason. How come if you want to do an activity with your kid, that's a valid reason. So w- whatever whatever reason uh, that you have, you know, as long as you're not uh, doing it so you can like kick somebody's butt, <laughs> yeah, it's totally valid. That that's that's one that I keep coming back to over and over again. And, and like your one of your original reasons, you know, to get the girls <laughs> <laughs> to, be, to be cool. That's right. And, and, and the jury's still out on that, so I don't know. As as but, as John uh, as Johnny says in Cobra Kai, kicks get chicks. I think that's what he said in <laughs> one of the episodes. <laughs> Well, thank goodness I don't watch Cobra Kai, or oh. otherwise I would, I would have stolen it. <laughs> it made me laugh when he said it. It was hilarious. Yeah. So. All right, this one I'm really curious about because you've met and trained with so many people. You've had such an amazing – and this doesn't have to be people you've actually met. It can be anyone. Mm-hmm. Name three, four, five names that you would put on your personal Mount Rushmore of martial arts. Okay. Uh, 
Sugar Ray Robinson. Nice. Okay. I like that. One of the best martial arts books that I have ever read was the autobiography of Sugar Ray. Very cool. Yeah. Again, Muhammad Ali. Okay. Okay. Two non-martial artists, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm Mount Rushmore. Let's see. Uh, hey, boxing's a martial arts. So. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. This one's kind of a funny, funny one for mm-hmm. most people. Robert W. Smith. Oh, okay. Robert W. Smith was one of the first authors that I really, really got into. Uh, he was one of the first people that introduced uh, Chinese martial arts. Uh, he wrote uh, books on uh, Cheng's Tai Chi. He wrote uh, books on Bagua and Xingyi. And then uh, I don't know if you know, have you ever seen the book Secret Fighting Arts of the World? I've heard of it. I've never read it. Well, he was one of the principal authors in that, but it was meant to be a spoof book back in 1964-ish oh, wow. because there was all these mystical, you know, you know like, like the old Charles Atlas ones, you know, yeah. are they kicking sand in your face? Yep. And the, the secret mystical moves. So he and uh, a very extremely well-versed martial artist, Don Drager, Jim Bregman. Jim Bregman was the first uh, judo uh Olympics medalist. He took bronze. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Blooming, a uh, personal disciple of uh, Maso Yama. They got together and wrote a spoof book called Secret Fighting Arts of the World about this rich, rich textile uh, millionaire who was basically great in everything and all the, had all these funky little stories, right? Mm-hmm. And they were hoping people would catch on this was a spoof. Well, actually, as it was, they thought this guy was real. They wrote <laughs> under the pseudonym of John Gilby. But the screwy thing is that in each chapter, with the exception of one or two, there's actually tidbits of very priceless fighting information in there. Nice. <laughs> and so you gotta you gotta read between, you know, you gotta take the tongue out of the cheek and look for the lines that are like priceless. Anyway, Robert W. Smith okay. uh, is, is one of those. Nice. And there's just three guys. I would have to think long and hard on the rest of them. I've had people do as few as two and as many as eight. So it doesn't have to be four. Yeah. You know, the karate guys, boy, there's, there's just been a ton of karate guys that have been impressive, just wonderful people. But those will be the three off the top of my head. Hey, those are three good ones. I like it. Yeah. Okay. And so this question you might've already answered possibly, but, and it can't be one of your own favorite martial arts book. Oh boy. I keep shifting from one to the next to the next mm-hmm. to the next. But, <laughs> Me but, too. Uh, but Sugar Ray, yep. you know, it was probably dictated to him by Dave Anderson because Sugar Ray wasn't, uh, he wasn't educated. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure some of the language has been cleaned up for grammar and syntax and all that kind of business. But what you've got is you've got the rise and the mind of a champion from a champion's viewpoint for crying out loud. Nice. Wow. And then he'll, he'll bring in little things. And like, he's talking about, uh, He'll be at a party and they said, well, did you go to school? Yes, ma'am. I went to Grupp's college. And then he'll talk about, well, when he was training in Grupp's gym, there would be some of the old timers down there. And one would be saying, the mirror. Okay. Use the mirror. The mirror will show you where your guns are. You know, I mean, just priceless little uh, uh, things. There's another one where he was doing a comeback and he's struggling. He's just having a hell of a time and he's fighting these guys and, having a, and then he finally loses to a guy who's kind of a journeyman his name is uh ralph tiger jones and everybody's giving up on him and says shouldn't have lost the tiger jones it's time to hang up your uh, uh time to hang up your gloves not you no fighter goes on for everybody gives up on him except for his wife and his wife asks him says uh dear do you mind if i say something she says go ahead he says it looks like you're trying to knock everybody out you're trying to prove to everybody that you're the ray robinson you're not using your tricks and it just slams him like a ton of bricks. 
Everybody says I'm washed up by my wife. It's those little tricks that made you great. He starts going back to the gym and starts working on his basics. First thing he did, he went in the mirror, started working on his jab, et cetera. What priceless information for martial artists. Wow. You get to a certain point where I'll do this to this day. If things are going stinky, go back to basics. I know we're wrapping up, but can I tell you a story on this? Yes, definitely. Okay. So back in 2014, I've got this girl who's a junior black belt. She's got Gumby hips, you know, and she's a straight A level in school. So she's keeping her scholastics up. But the thing is, is she wants to go on Broadway. So she's doing singing lessons. She's doing music lessons. She's keeping her academics up. And she's just kind of groaning to the fact that she hasn't got that much time to do martial arts. She wants to get better at her sparring. So I mentioned, she says, well, tell me your schedule. And she's got this schedule. It's just terrible. I mean, she's got no time. But she does have a free day on, on Sunday. That's when she takes her time off. She says, okay, I'll tell you what. Meet me at the school at 3, at 3 p.m. on Sundays, and we'll spar. So she starts meeting me once a week. Now, by this time, you know, I'm, I'm 64. It's like, I haven't got the rubber hips. She's got the rubber hips. <laughs> so I thought, oh, this ought to be interesting. Instead of bemoaning what I can't do, let's take a look at what I can do, and let's work from there. Well, so I've got front kick. Fair enough. If I overturn my hips, I've got a hybrid between side kick and back kick. Fine. I have straight punch. I have back fist. I have hook punch or a ridge hand. And I've got tons of experience. Let's make a game out of this. Let's see if I can rehardwire the system. Let's, let's see if I can rehardwire the system because all this super Dan business isn't going anywhere. Great. So I, I start working with it. And I start doing really well with this. I go, okay, yeah, this is really good. But She's not going to spank the old man. She's, got to, she, 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 she's not going to beat on me like I owe her money. Let's get somebody else in here. So I get a, get a hold of my buddy, Bill Shaw. Now, Bill Shaw is about my age or maybe one year more than me, but he's kept stretching and he's, he fights in tournaments and so forth. And so we get together and I tell him, so, look, I'm trying to rehardwire the system. Let me tell you something. If you do any of this dork ball stuff that's in tournaments these days, like bending over and hitting me with jab to the belly, I'm going to disregard it. And I'm going to go through that and I'm going to beat on you, except, you know, I, I'm not going to really beat on him, but I'm, I'm not, I'm going to disregard that and just go, go after you. And so it's like, okay, good. So I'm still rehardwiring the system. Right. So anyway, but we get to a point where, you know, I mean, Bill's pushing me, but he's not going to disrespect me. Let's go somewhere where they don't give a hoot who I am. <laughs> Let's fight in a tournament. So I get it all set up to fight down in Salem, which is our state capital, about an hour away from us. And the weekend of the tournament, the ice age hits. So, ah, crap, I can't go down there. So I wait for a couple months. There's a tournament in my backyard, and it's a Japanese-style tournament. And I'd learned how to adapt many, many years ago to fighting Japanese-style. In fact, I, at the AAU Nationals in 1984, I uh, took second place in the open weight division. You know, that's all weights, et cetera. And that's pure Japanese style, straight punch, straight punch, uh, straight kick. But I was good enough to be able to pull that off. Well, anyway, so there's there's a tournament which has those kind of rules in town. So I, I get a hold of uh, the guy who's doing the actual uh, legwork on the tournament, Jay. You know, I get a hold of him, says, Jay, uh, I, I got a request of it. He says, yes. Well, I want to fight in your tournament, but, uh, but don't make this broad public issue. Just keep it between us. But I've got a question. And he goes, yes. What do you want? He says, well. Am I going to be restricted to my age division? He goes, Dan, what do you want to do? I, said, I want to fight the children. I want to fight. I want to fight 18 through 34. He goes, really? He says, yeah. He says, well, let me run it by the lead guy. 
I'm going to meet up with him on Wednesday. This is like on a Monday when I called him. I'm going to meet up with him on Wednesday. Let me get a few drinks in it, and then let me ask. <laughs> so anyway, I get a call back, and he says, Dan, you're on. He says, good. Don't tell anybody that I'm going to fight. <laughs> and so I go there, and I surprise everybody just by my presence because, you know, I'm very well known in my area. And I fought a couple of Japanese tournaments, but, uh, you know, I, I, I went there the year before just as a meet and greet. You know, oh, yeah, Super Dan, Dad, how you doing? I'm fighting today. Really? <laughs> and so I fight in the uh, seniors division, and it goes exactly the way that I think it goes. You know, it's like, okay, uh, I'm still older than everybody, but I win the division hands down. And my viewpoint is that, and this is the viewpoint of a champion, right? I don't want to go in there and fight a bunch of old people. I'm, I'm, I want to go in there and compete. So I go into the, the 18 to 34 division and honest to Pete, the next oldest person is easily 40 years younger than me. And it's like, Oh, let's put the feet to the fire. And so I go in there and you know, I, I have several matches and I, I end up tying for third. The only thing that I didn't work, you know, and all I worked on was positioning and timing, positioning and timing. I didn't work on uh, cardio because I hate working on cardio <laughs> yep. and that, and that betrayed me in the end. Oh my God, was I gassed. But the key thing was making a showing to everybody that you can do this at an advanced age because you don't have to, uh, every stripe on the belt doesn't mean an additional 20 pounds, Right. you know, it doesn't have to be that way. And that with the right mindset, you can, you can do this. Now, where this ties in with my favorite martial arts book goes back to the little tricks, going back to the basics. Mm -hmm. What made me great? Well, what made me great was knowing what I could do, knowing what the body could do, and very, very importantly, knowing what it couldn't do. And then over the top of that is just taking a positive attitude. Okay, take what you know you can do, build on that. Don't lament what you can't do. Otherwise, you're going to be, you know, uh, getting into this grouchy, grouchy thing and you'll never be able to let it go. Right. No, no, don't, yeah, let it go. Do what you can do and run from there. Anyway, long story that has to do with my favorite martial arts hey, book. My, my like favorite it. martial arts book is Sugar Ray. Yeah, it's, nice. it's a brain. I've read that at least five times. I just, add, I just added it to my list on Amazon, so I'll be ordering that one. So yeah. I appreciate you, that. What, get, you can get it from Amazon for pretty cheaply, but yeah. you can probably get a copy from eBay. Okay. Cheaply. I'll, I'll try that. Or thrift books. One of the, But yeah, no, nice. it's a wonderful book. Yeah, and it'll only be out like at best 15 bucks plus uh, shipping. Okay. So it, that it's works. A, it, yeah, yeah, it really works. All right. So cool. next question. question. Uh, favorite martial arts TV show? I don't like any of them. None of them? I don't yeah, like you, any of them. You mentioned Green Hornet, though. You liked Green Hornet? Yeah, no, it's all right. But you look at you look at what Bruce Lee did in there now, and it was just you know you look at it from the difference between uh, what I know now and what I did then. Mm -hmm. You know, then it was like a wide-eyed, goggle-eyed guy, but not uh, you know. I look at it now, and it goes, "Yeah, okay, fine." <laughs> but now let me transform that question into unless unless it's uh, coming up. Your favorite martial arts scene in a movie—it's kind of coming up. So that's coming. Okay. <laughs> yep, okay. Kind of, well, we'll, we'll, we'll okay. get there. I gotta Go ask: Have you watched the new series uh, Warrior? Nope. Really? No. No. I no. I'm watching the Blacklist right now. Oh, that's a good show. I like. I gotta get caught. I gotta get caught up on the new season. But you, you might be interested in Warrior because it's it's what Kung Fu was supposed to be. It's Shannon Leak helped create it, and it's from Bruce Lee's original notes for what Kung Fu was supposed to be. Ah, it's okay. It's a really good show. What what what, what, uh, uh, what channels are on? <sighs> what is that one on? Is it on? It's either Amazon or HBO Max. I can't remember. So. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's good. 
Okay. How about, how about a favorite martial arts movie? I hate all of them. I got, you know, I got, I got so tired. Uh, I mean, I, you know, when you watch enter the dragon at least 20 times, it gets old, Yeah. but now, okay. (laughs) Okay. Here's something I never get tired of. Okay. Did you ever see Kentucky fried chicken? (laughs) Oh, the Kentucky fried movie. Kentucky fried movie. Kentucky fried movie. Yep. A fistful of yen. Yep. Yeah, that little that little little movie piece in there that was the spoof on Enter the Dragon. There you that's go. my favorite. A fistful again. Yeah. Okay. And this one, kind of what you hinted to, it's usually how I ask it is it doesn't have to be martial arts, but just your favorite movie fight scene. Oh, this is perfect. Get Shorty. Ooh. Get Shorty. Nice. Now, there's two scenes in there where he's with the the bodyguard stuntman Bear, who's uh played by the late James Gandolfino, who, who is uh, Tony Soprano. Yep. And there's one up on the stairway in a restaurant. And I cannot think of the guy uh, who is his uh, employer. But he says, yeah, this is Bear. He's a movie stuntman. He takes care of things that uh, you know I want thrown out or something like that. Mm-hmm. And Travolti looks at him, oh, you're a stuntman, huh? And then he grabs him by the lapel and grabs him by the balls and throws him down <laughs> the stairway. <laughs> We're talking... We're talking, you couldn't have get, gotten more direct. Nice. Now, later on, the same guy tried to uh, set up uh, Travolta, who plays this, who played this really cheeky, uh, just really cheeky uh, Shylock. Mm-hmm. But he tried to set him up uh, with retrieving some money from a locker in an airport. And, you know, Travolta already knows that this is a setup and he's not going to do this. Well, anyway, he goes back to his car and uh, there's Gandolfino again, you know, says, uh, What's his name? I can't remember. He wants the key back. He says, he wants the key back? Is, is this how you do business in L.A.? I really got to hand it to you. And then immediately he kicks him in the shins and gut punches him wow. and then knees him. One, two, three. Wham, wham, wham. And it was like, okay, nice. yeah, I like that. That's good. Yeah. And then uh, uh, now runner-ups, mm-hmm. Taken, Ooh. Liam Neeson, yep. Yep. and the first John Wick. Nice. The first John, the first John Wick, I thought was brilliantly choreographed. Okay, but the cool thing about that would be, you know, he would do this wrist lock throw on the guy, dump him over, and then bang, bang, take him out, shoot him right away. I mean, and, and there wasn't, with the exception of the long, stupid long fight scene at the end with the older Russian, which should not have lasted very long. Right. You know, I mean, everything is quick and down, and then you know, Liam Neeson in Taken. Well, it's Liam Neeson. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So, but yeah, the, the, the two fight scenes from Get Shorty were nice. so brilliantly simple. They're just a joy to watch. Just simple, simple, simple. That's, I can honestly say, I believe you're the first one to pick Get Shorty. You might be the first to pick Taken. Maybe one other person has said it, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that, that's, that's, why I, that's why I love that. I added that question just in the last, I think, year uh, just to get some oh, of that okay. because there's, I've had some, I've, I've had people pick anything from like Star Wars and Marvel movies to, I had one guest pick the Princess Bride earlier this year, the, the Sword Fiend, <laughs> which I thought was actually a good pick after, after thinking well, about the Princess it. Princess Bride. Yeah. The, the, the sword fight was epic. I yeah, mean, exactly. It was, it was wonderful. Yeah. But, so, but that's why I love that. So there's so many different, I mean, they, there's the go-to people will pick, you know, enter the dragon and stuff and things like that and Rocky and everything like that. But I, I like hearing the, one-off ones like that that no one else picks so that's fun yeah, yeah. <laughs> cool yeah next time you see get, get shorty or you might even uh, youtube up fight scene or uh you know something like that get shorty i'm pretty sure you can see a, a, a mini clip of it i will try yeah. to find you, that you, so. you really got everything wow. anyway dan next i got question. it that's actually the last one but i i got it this has been 
such a you are an amazing storyteller. Seriously, <laughs> I, I could I could lit. I mean, I love talking martial arts. I could talk to you for another two hours <laughs> if we had the well, time. There's there, 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 there's one there's one question yes that you didn't ask. Okay, and so I will insert the question here. If if it's the one I'm thinking of, I'm probably probably because you get. I'm guessing you've been asked it many many times. Where did you get the nickname Super Dan? <laughs> Oh no, that's a that's a that's a different one. Oh, okay, that, that one, okay. That, that one's a funny story too. Oh, okay. I'll tell, you really, I'll tell you that one really quickly. Okay. So, uh, the guy who was the chief of the martial arts school. His girlfriend and her twin sister ran a printing shop, and I worked for them in the printing shop, so I knew them very well, and and they knew that I liked comic books. Now, the woman who wrote up the uh, the tournament report for okay. the magazine, you know, she sent it in, and I see it. They knew I like comic books, so. They see it. Excuse me. I get the magazine. I see the write-up on the tournament, and I see there where it says, "And young Super Dan Anderson, as he is being known on the Northwest Karate Circuit." And I'm like, <laughs> "What?" And I was pissed. I was ticked off. And nobody. I'm not young. Nobody calls me Super Dan, et cetera, et cetera. And her attitude was, <laughs> "Deal with it," you know. And so I don't like this. Well, anyway, I'm at a tournament later on, and somebody calls out Super Dan. <laughs> but it was it was the tone in their voice. It was a respect thing. It was a nickname. It was a handle. And all of a sudden, it was like, you know, just like a CB radio guy. I've got a handle. Interesting. Now, here's a little minor martial arts uh, tidbit. I was the first person on the national circuit to have a nickname. Really? I had, a, I had the nickname before Superfoot Wallace, before Jeff Smith, the DC bomber, before Howard Jackson, the California Flash. Nice. I was Super Dan about two years before that. Okay. Now, I'm proud of that. What I'm not proud of is I was the first person to, uh, well, no, actually, this one is good, and I'll get to the question you didn't ask. Okay. But this one's good, which is I was the first guy not to wear a karate gi or a kung fu uniform in a martial arts match. Nice. I was the first guy to wear a t-shirt. Very cool. Um, now, this next one I'm not really so much proud of, but it's taken on a life of its own. I'm the first guy to ever call his own points. In, in tournament matches. Really? Yes. I did not know that. I, yes. I was the first guy. I, again, like I said, I thought I was the white Muhammad Ali, <laughs> but instead I was uh, you know, ticking everybody off except for my fanboys. But what I would do is I would do anything to influence the judges. And one of the things that I found out that influenced the judges was if I hit the person, like with a punch or a back knuckle, I would raise my hand and I, and I would yell, got him. <laughs> now, if they didn't, Get, you, you'll like this next part. If they didn't call the point, I would hit the guy, raise my hand, and I'd yell, got him again. <laughs> that one always got me the point. But it was the raising my hand in victory of how I got him. Okay, I was the first guy to do that. All right. So there's my super dance story and the things I was proud of. The question you didn't ask was, have you ever met Bruce Lee? Oh, yeah, I guess I never did ask that. Okay. Yes. And the answer is yes. And I always let everybody know in a seminar that I am the only person in the United States who ever met Bruce Lee and taught him nothing. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it, but I learned something from him. So it was the 1969 International Karate Championships. I was a brown belt. I was uh, 16 years old. And I was still swept up in the Bruce Lee craze at that time. Mm -hmm. And it was the intermission on Sunday. It was a nice sunny afternoon. We're sitting on the lawn. We're waiting for the arena to be opened up because they shut it down to close the Long Beach arena. They shut it down, close, uh, close it up. They'd clean it and then they reopen it for the finals. 
So this limousine pulls up, and I'm about, oh, not a full hundred yards, but I'm, I'm quite a ways away from this limousine. And out steps Bruce Lee and Linda. And I am just like, <laughs> it's Bruce Lee. And I'm off my ass, and I'm walking at a trajectory well at where I will intercept. I was better than the best radar-guided torpedo you've ever seen. I mean, I was on an intercept. and. I'm just, I'm amazed. I'm, I'm dumbstruck. I'm, I'm, here's my hero. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. And I have no clue what I'm going to say to him. Well, anyway, I intercept him and he honest, honest to Pete, I walked in front of them. I halted he and Linda Lee walking towards the arena. And by this time I figured out what I wanted to say. I used to collect martial arts business cards. Okay. So I go, excuse me, you're, you're Mr. Bruce Lee, aren't you? And he goes, yes. And I go, hi, my name's Dan Anderson. I, I collect martial arts business cards. Do you have one on you? Now, whenever I tell this story in a seminar, I will always ask, okay, so who came here in street clothes? Invariably, somebody raises their hand. So, okay, I have some questions for you. Do you remember what you wore? And he goes, yes. Yeah. Okay, so uh, what kind of shoot, you know, what kind of shirt did you wear? Well, it was a button-down polo shirt. Was there an emblem? Yeah, it had Nike on it. Okay. What kind of pants did you wear? Uh, I wore gray dockers. Good. Did you wear a belt? Yeah, what good. What was the color of the belt? Well, the belt was brown. Okay, what kind of socks did you wear? Uh, I, I have these uh, dark gray socks that are kind of business socks. Uh-huh. Okay, good. What kind of shoes did you wear? Well, I've got these loafers. Uh, do they have shoelaces? No. Okay, did you wear a jacket to the school? Well, no, it's kind of warm today. Thank you. So you knew what you wear, what you wore, right? So because yes. And then I go back to telling the story, which is, well, now, you got to remember this is 1969. Bruce Lee had his Nehru jacket on. And he had his white skin tight pants on and his beetle boots. And his, his pants were tight enough you could count every hair on his butt. <laughs> and Bruce Lee was a, was a muscular little show off. He liked to show off his body. His jacket was tight. The moment the words came out of my mouth, I knew it was a stupid question because you could see he did not have a business card. <laughs> he did not have a wallet. And then I tell him, says, but what did Bruce Lee do? And then I go through the motions of patting down my uh, uh, breast pocket, my back pockets for a business card. And then he looks at me, sorry, I don't have one. Maybe next time. Wow. And I said, thank you, sir. And I said, now, so what did Bruce Lee do? He took three seconds to pretend to look for a card he darn well knew he didn't have. Yep. And he could have been W.C. Fields. Go away, boy, you bother me. But instead... He took a couple of seconds for this goofy kid checking for something he knew he didn't have just out of politeness or whatever. I was in seventh heaven. I went back and instead of being humiliated, he took a split moment to do that. And I used that as a guiding point later on in my career. In fact, uh, Mike Jennifer from uh, uh, North Carolina, he and I signed every scrap of promo that a kid would bring up if they if they had the tournament flyer good if they had the tournament program i remember one time there's this kid who they were calling my name to fight in a match and i'm from portland oregon this guy super dan anderson and this kid comes up with with a tournament booklet wanting me to sign it and i told him look they're calling my name you stay here don't go anywhere you stand right in the spot you freeze you don't move i've got a fight they're calling me I will be back. I went up, fought the match. To this day, I have no recollection as to whether I won or not. <laughs> I came back, and he was standing there. Good man. Thank you. Now I'll sign. And I signed it, whatever. And, and there it was. And that was the lesson Bruce Lee taught me. 
You can take two seconds to uplift somebody, or you can take two seconds to crush them. Yeah. At the same tournament, Joe Lewis crushed me. <laughs> and it mm. was like, but at the same tournament, Chuck Norris, Mike Stone, John Natividad, Steve Muhammad, who is Steve Saunders at yep. that time. We have one. We have time for one more good story. Oh, go ahead. Yes. <laughs> okay, Steve Saunders, Steve Steve Muhammad. He taught me about race relations, and with just almost like a nod of his head. We're driving down. I'm a brown belt. I'd read about, ooh, Steve Sanders. He's a, a BK, uh, B, uh, not, he's a couple guy. He's a lightweight, fastest hands. Bruce Lee thinks he's got the fastest hands in karate. Yada, yada, yada. We go down there, and I'm hearing all this yip about uh, Black Karate Federation. Riots, fights, got to watch out with these BKF guys, et cetera, et cetera. Now, remember, this is 1969, and I grew up in a town where I only knew five black kids. One kid thought he was uh, the reincarnation of James Brown. The other one, you would have sworn he was Urkel. Uh, <laughs> one kid was the track guy. And then there was a pair of twins who were uh, heavy set and uh, strong kids. Those are the only guys I knew about. Now, 1969, what's happening in the press? Black Panthers, Watts, Civil Rights, uh, the Chicago 7, etc. So, you know, they're mentioning uh, BKF. And I'm thinking, oh, God, these guys are like. These guys are wicked. Yeah, you, you, you got to watch out if you're a white guy. Blah, 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 blah. So we're down at the tournament. And I see Steve and uh, sitting next to him is Reverend Donnie Williams. Nice. And about 20 of the BKF guys. And it's kind of like, I've seen him in the magazines. I got to do something. I got to say something. They're going to kill me because I'm a white kid. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and so, so I put my man pants on. I walked over. And I said, excuse me, you're Mr. Steve Saunders, aren't you? And he, he looks up and he goes, yes. I go, hi, I'm Dan Anderson. I'm from Oregon. I've just read about you in the magazines. I just wanted to say hi. I don't know what he said. He was very soft-spoken. He's still soft-spoken. And he shook my hand and I walked away and I'm kind of going, I wasn't killed. <laughs> These guys didn't take offense. Something's wrong with this picture. you know. And, and it was the first time I ever got this concept of, you know, the news being slanted, right? Because he was a nice guy. Well, as it turns out, you know, over the coming years, I'm darn near an honorary Black Karate Federation guy because I'm hanging with the second generation. I'm hanging with Hot Dog and Ernest Russell and Nathan Cruz and Sammy Pace and these guys. And it was just like, uh, uh, you know, it was just like I trained in the school for crying out loud. Wow. Now, later on, I'm up at George Kirby's Budo camp, and I see Cliff, uh, Cliff Stewart, who is one of the founders of the BKF. And I'm thinking, there's no way Cliff would know me, you know, because we're wrong generation. Mm -hmm. And so I, I don't go up and say anything to him and, and so forth. You know, I'm teaching my class. But in, in between classes, I hear this, super dad! <laughs> and it's Cliff. So I walk up and I tell him uh, about, God, I didn't even think you'd know me or recognize me. And we chat, and I told him about the story. About, uh, you know, the story that I just told you mm -hmm. in 1969, said, you know, Pops, which was his nickname, Pops, taught me about race relations. And uh, I learned an incredible life lesson and I never had the chance to tell him. So anyway, we break off the communication. That's in the morning. In the afternoon, again, I hear this booming voice, Cliff Stewart, <laughs> but this time he's holding up a cell phone and he yells, guess who I've got on the line? And he's got Pops on the line. 
And I'm just, I'm flabbergasted by it because by this time, you know, Steve Muhammad, uh, he's converted to Islam. He's living in Georgia on the outskirts of uh, Atlanta and he called Pops. And so I, I called him and I mean, I, I spoke to him on the phone. I told him about this incredibly important uh, lesson in race relations. And I just wanted to thank him. And then he originates and says, Dan, here's a story you don't know about. We used to watch you to learn how to fight the national fighters. And you could hear this. You could, I, I swear you could hear this loud of my jaw hitting the ground. Because <laughs> it's like, here's this guy that I idolized. And I'm the guy that they're watching to learn how to fight national fighters. Whoa. I was, I was amazingly stunned. And then just to cap it off, uh, gosh, I think it was at the Battle of Atlanta. Was it two years or three years ago? And I made sure I had a rented car to go visit him. Because I, I, you know, it's like, I don't know, an hour and a half, two hour drive. I don't care. I had to go see him. And we went out and we had tea and we chatted in the morning. And uh, anyway, my story on Bruce Lee, learning a lesson, learning a lesson, race relations from uh, Steve Muhammad. And he's, and he's still one of my idols. You know, my heart goes you know, thump, thump, thump when I think of him. Anyway, if I inspire others, even a quarter to what those guys inspired me, I've done my job well. That's my opinion. That's so. Cool. I think that's probably a good enough quote to to close it off with for the moment. Anyway, I think, so. like I said, amazing storyteller. I, I could easily talk to you for hours and hours and <laughs> hours more than we have. It's so much fun. That, that that I, don't get us going long into the night because I've got more. That's All right. you have to do is ask the right question and then shut your mouth, and hey, I won't shut up. Maybe so. at maybe at some point we'll do a part two. I've I've had a few guests ask okay. about coming on a second time, so maybe I'll find a way to make that work. But. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm open for it. Cool. Yeah, just, I, uh, I truly appreciate your time. This has been such an honor and so much fun. And I, I can't wait till the episode comes out. Your episode will come out on, uh, I think it's May 11th is your scheduled time. So okay. I'm, I'm, I'm so looking forward for people to hearing this and it's been such a blast. Excellent. Give me, uh, make sure you send me a link and I'll, uh, make sure that I, you know, have a copy of it for my archives and stuff. And, and it's been fun. I like, uh, yeah, I, I like talking about the good old days. I like talking about you know anybody that gets in, that that has a passion in martial arts, like I got from the uh, from the magazines. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a pay it forward. It's a big pay it forward. Nice. You inspire others if at all possible. I, I truly appreciate it. It's been a blast. Thank you. It's been good. Thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist. We hope you'll join us every week for a brand new episode with a different martial artist telling their story. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave us a review. Also, be sure to check out our website at everydaymartialartist.com. There you can find all of our episodes and contact us to suggest guests and ask questions. Again, thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist, and we'll see you next week.